0: Right, We're all taking right. all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This, this, this is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome, all you great coaches. This is Coach Bo. We are here at the eighty twenty Baseball Weekly Get-Together coming out every Tuesday. This episode, we are going to discuss hitter priorities, bat speed, bat-to-ball skills, swing decisions. I'm gonna tie this in with a professional coach's Twitter survey questionnaire poll that he put out the other day. We're gonna talk about that. We're going to discuss how police traffic enforcement relates to our expectations, our rules, and the consequences that come with those, and the drive to have a more disciplined team. So I'm going to talk about how those are interrelated and interconnected, and I'm sure after you hear it, you will all know exactly what I'm talking about when I connect those two completely different things in our life together. If you've been listening to this podcast and you can vouch for it, please leave a review. Please leave at least a rating at a minimum on your podcast platform because that does help help get this message out to more coaches to make the baseball community better. And that's why we're here. That's why this podcast is here. This is why we do what we do, is to make the baseball community a better place. Not cross our fingers and hope it does, but really trying to make a difference in the baseball community, the youth baseball community specifically. My goal here is to be the compass. There will be errors along the way. We all will make coaching errors. When I was first starting out as a coach, there was a lot of things. And definitely as a teacher, I worked my first first full time job was inner city LA kids inner city LA county I should say it was north long beach the campus literally bordered Compton most of my students were from Compton and Watts a few from north long beach a few from paramount and I'll tell you what there was a lot of mistakes and there was a big learning curve but I'll tell you what once I got over that curve once I got over that hump with the grace and the support of three tremendous mentors that had been teaching I think a combined like 7 Five years. They helped me make fewer mistakes. And as a coach, the things that I learned in a P classroom with 60 kids that were as challenging as they get when it comes to coming from dysfunctional community families, it just was what it was. It is what it is. And it was really a great fit for me. I loved every second of it. And I did it for 12 years in that same area until I moved a few years ago up here to Boise to get away from all that traffic and smog and trash everywhere. And in those 12 full years, I learned so much. And as a coach for 17 years, I learned a lot. I made a lot of errors along the way. I want to be a compass here. We want to work together and I curate a curation of such great wisdom that came before us out there in the baseball community and that wisdom that is out there right now. What I feel is a strong suit of mine is to quickly assess and identify what strategies, what coaching strategies, teaching strategies are optimal or are really good. and which aren't. I look at the results that coaches get. I look at continuity, consistency across years, across seasons with those results. I back-tested against my experiences, both in the classroom, almost 2,400 days working inner city as a PE teacher. Being a PE teacher is essentially a coach. I actually think it's more challenging. I think what I did in the PE classroom was more challenging than coaching baseball teams because one, I had a lot more kids. Two, I had, most of the kids didn't want to be there. Three, it was inner city kids who, to no fault of their own, came from extremely difficult situations, chaos, a lot of issues. And I learned really quick what worked and what didn't work. And then I could connect it with those things that I saw working really well in the baseball community, what I would hear, what I would see working. Some of you are old enough to remember there was a commercial by BASF. BASF. It was on all the time when I was younger, back in the late 80s, 90s. This BASF commercial would always say, we don't make the products you buy, we make the products you buy better. I don't bring you all these coaching strategies. I didn't build all these myself, but I'm trying to bring these strategies and then even try to improve them when we can. And that's what I'm here for, to be a compass, to be a curator, to give you something in a concise, clear direction. Speaking of concise and clear, let's get into it here. The other day, a professional baseball hitting coach posted on Twitter, which is most important for a hitter? A, bat speed, B, bat to ball skills, C, swing decision slash approach. If you've been listening to the last almost 4,000 minutes of this podcast, 120 episodes, you know exactly what my answer was. You could say all of them are important, of course, because if your bat speed is too slow, you'll never catch up to anything. And it doesn't matter if it's right down the middle and the hitter has a great approach, a great plan. It doesn't matter if you can't catch up, they'll just throw it right down the middle or eventually throw enough fastballs over the plate and you will strike out eventually or go down looking. Either way, it's not a good result. And hopefully you'll cross your Fingers and get a walk. Now, stay with me on this. The second one was bat to ball skills. Bat to ball skills. This would be like a Vladimir Guerrero Sr., an Ichiro. I'm throwing back some older names. Really great bat to ball skills. Tony Gwynn, really good bat to ball skills. Is that important? Sure. Because you could be on time, but if you're six inches above or below the ball, you're never going to hit it. Or if you just miss it every time, you don't square it up. The problem with this question is, is it kind of throws three things into a category that I believe are not, or they should not be in the same category per se say bat speed and bat to ball skills involve a swing swing decision and a hitting approach involve much more than that and they involve what pitches to swing at and what pitches not to swing at it doesn't necessarily have to do or in this case in this question it doesn't have anything to do with the swing itself so it's talking about two things that are related to the swing and one thing that's not i think a better way to handle this would be to break down what are the priorities what's more important for hitters say bat speed bat to ball skills power bat path bat angle launch angle etc Things that actually have to do with just the swing and then get into what's more important with the hitting approach and break that into some subcategories. There are some questions about the approach itself. But that leads me to my answer. I'm a fan of prioritizing the swing approach and the swing decision. Like Ted Williams said, the number one thing a hitter must do, the priority, the number one thing that they must prioritize is to get a good pitch to hit. Of course, he's talking with less than two strikes, but he's also referring to, or you can extrapolate from that, that we shouldn't swing at terrible pitches with two strikes, those pitches that are bouncing in the dirt or up at our eyes. I have found, I have seen over and over and over again, hitters not struggling to catch up to the average pitch at their level or more often than not, they're able to catch up. Their bat speed is sufficient. Maybe it's not enough to produce home runs, but most players have enough bat speed that if they are to start their swing a little early, their rhythm speeds up just a little bit, they can and will catch up. At least at a minimum, they can drive the pitch the other way. Now, if they're facing uber elite velocity, that's a challenge for anybody. So that's maybe something a little bit different. They might get the pitch thrown by them from time to time with that 95th, 98th percentile velocity. But most hitters, even the worst hitters, can figure out a way to get their swing on time for your typical, definitely your slower velocity, your typical average velocity at their level, at their respective level. So I don't see that as a big issue. And bat-to-ball skills. I believe that most hitters, youth baseball, hitters, bat-to-ball skills are probably in a place that's good enough to have success, to have some success as a hitter insofar as their eyesight is good. And you may think, what am I talking about? Hitters that have bad eyesight or haven't been diagnosed, any glasses or contacts, that surely can be a big time issue when it comes to bat-to-ball skills. Depth perception issues, blurry vision, vision issues is definitely something that I think actually all hitters should be checked for. All players should be assessed. Their vision should be assessed before the season or at least once a year just to make sure everything that we're coaching them to do and everything they're working hard on is for not. And I'm serious. If they can't see the ball or there's something with their vision that's keeping them from clearly seeing the ball come in and pick it up and see the depth perception, then everything else is for not. So as long as the vision is good, I think the approach, in other words, the pitches that they swing at is the most important thing. And it's not because one or two of them can't coexist without the other, because you can look at it like this. Without any of these three, if you take any of these three answers out of the equation, then the hitter will not have success. So you can't say, well, it's kind of that like triangle where if you take out the bat speed and they can't catch up. So if they just have absolutely terrible bat speed and they just can't catch up to the average or slow fastball or definitely a faster, higher velocity fastball, well, then they'll never make contact. So it doesn't matter if they know what pitch is good or not or not good. It doesn't matter if they have good bat to ball skills that they can't catch up. They're going to get mowed down pretty quick and pretty often. Then you could say, well, it doesn't matter how good their bat speed is or their decision when it comes to swinging at the correct pitches and taking the correct pitches. You could say, well, it doesn't matter how good those are if they can't make contact. If they miss the ball every time, it doesn't matter. They could have the fastest bat in the world. Some of you have seen hitters like that, quick bat speed, but they just don't hit the ball. They don't square up the ball. And it doesn't matter if they have great decision-making skills when the pitch is coming in as to what pitch they should swing at, what pitches they should take. It doesn't matter how good their approach is to the pitch if their bat speed and bat the ball skills aren't good that's all for not. They could swing at cookie pitches and take the bad pitches. They are going to walk more with this as the main skill, or this is the, if they were to hypothetically only have one of these, that's good. One of these areas, that's good. If it's the hitting approach, the hitting plan, if that's the good area, that's their strong suit, they're going to walk more. But if they can't make contact with the ball, they could be swinging at cookies down the middle and missing them, or they could be behind them, not catching up to them right down the middle. So it doesn't matter. They could swing at all the great pitches and take all the bad pitches. But if all those great pitches are right down the middle and they can't, hit them, well, then it doesn't really matter. So they all go together, of course. But the question is not what one is important and the others are not important. It's asking what is the most important? I believe this, and I'm going to sum it up here. Swing decision and swing approach is the skill that could and can be improved the most of all those based off of all the thousands and thousands and thousands of youth and even professional baseball players that i have seen. The bat speed, if you were to go out and measure it from one hitter to another, there's not going to be a massive difference in bat speed, relatively speaking, on a rate or percentage basis. Bat-to-ball skills. There's not going to be as big a gap between your best bat-to-ball skill hitter and your worst bat-to-ball skill hitter as there will be a gap between what hitter has the best approach and which hitters have the worst approaches, the worst pitch decision-making skills. I believe there's a bigger gap between the hitters that have the least success and the hitters that have the most success. I believe there's a bigger gap when it comes to swing decision slap approach than the other two. But I've seen this across the board at every level. There is the biggest difference, the biggest competitive advantage is to coach up the swing decision and the approach, the swing decision and approach skills more so than the bat to ball skills. Those two other areas are important. Definitely. You want to have some bat speed and there's no reason not to increase it. Bat to ball skills, definitely want to increase that. In fact, I have recommended on the fall webinar, I gave out two specific drills that literally focus on bat to ball skills heavily. And actually they... They really, really spruce up the bat-to-ball skill challenge so hitters can get even better in the game and they can even have bat-to-ball skills come game time. I believe that the biggest difference between the good hitters and the subpar hitters in terms of productivity right now in your area, in your league, at all levels is that swing decision slash approach. I think there's a bigger gap between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to that skill and that is why I believe it's the most important. Of course, each of these bat speed, bat-to-ball skill, swing decision slash approach, without one of those, it's going to be really difficult to hit and sometimes impossible without all of these skills to some level of competency. But the biggest area of growth, the biggest area sitting there for improvement is coaching up the swing decision and approach. To me, this is the biggest competitive advantage sitting out there for the players and all of you coaches to take advantage of. I think there's the biggest gap to close. There's a bigger gap to close with that skill. So that's where I'll leave it right there. Bat speed, bat to ball skills, swing decision slash approach. Of course, they're all important. They all play a role without one of them. Hitting is a, absolutely is already tough enough. It's already more difficult than most things in sports. But without one of those, any of them, it's going to be a struggle. But to me, the biggest room for growth for almost all hitters, the biggest room for growth, that's a good way. I should probably set it that way from the get go. The biggest room for growth for your typical average, the bulk of your hitters is going to be swing decision slash approach in terms of improving that area. That will get you a big... Bigger increase in production. I believe if you coach that area more than the others, or at least emphasize that a little more than the others or a lot more than the others, there is the bigger room for growth in that area. All right. Now, part two of this week's episode. So the other day I was driving down a little bit of a thoroughfare here in Boise on the north end of Boise. Anybody that's been to Boise up on the north end, there's a road called Bogus Basin, Bogus Basin Road. And Bogus Basin actually goes to the local ski hill that is about 40 minutes north of downtown, 45 minutes north of downtown, a very popular stop. A lot of people work. They'll go up there in the evening and do night skiing. They'll go up there on the weekends. It's quite, that's maybe the only place there's traffic in Boise during ski season going up to Bogus Basin, the ski area. But nonetheless, I'm driving down Bogus Basin Road and I found myself driving the speed limit eh, a few miles an hour over. It's a 30 mile an hour zone. It's kind of residential. There are houses, but they set back a little ways, but it's a thoroughfare. So it's not one of those residential areas or should I say residential streets? It doesn't have that residential street feel. In fact, down the way, there is a stoplight. It's the only stoplight I come into contact with for weeks on end. But nonetheless, I found myself driving at the speed limit or just above the speed limit. I found myself hitting the brakes. I found myself checking my speedometer. And I thought, wait a second, I haven't seen a cop on this street. First off, I drive safe for the most part, but this is a downhill slope. It get, you can, at 30 miles an hour is not that fast when you think of overall driving and coming from Southern California, where if you're going 70 on the freeway, or if you're going 75 or even 80 in the fast lane, the far left lanes on the freeways in Southern California, you're getting honked at, you're getting buzzed by. People are literally going around you on the right to get past you. If you're in the far left lane, they don't stand for that. Now, I'm not going to get into safety and all that whatnot. I had my driving years when I was young where I was definitely probably driving, not probably, driving faster than I should have, but I don't drive very fast now. But nonetheless, going down this slope and going down this hill, it's easy to pick up speed. So 30 can easily become 37, 40. And I'm sure that's ticket land for those cops that are there. Well, speaking of cops, I realized I was going slow and I hadn't seen a cop anywhere in the vicinity on that street, up or down that road in a long time, like a year. And I found myself slowing down thinking that cop, that motorcycle cop was going to be there where they were a year ago, three consecutive days. They were there twice a motorcycle cop and one was an SUV in the same spot on that road, checking speeds, giving tickets like a year ago. And to this day, I go down that road almost every day. My daughter's school is down that way. And I find myself brake checking. I find myself slowing down and going the speed limit. Now, part of that is just because I'm driving safe. But also. Also, because I don't want to get a ticket. Now, stick with me here. There is a really, really, really key coaching message tied into this motorcycle cops and team rules. It is very important as the baseball season comes upon us, it is very important to set forth your expectations, your rules. If you want to have an organized, disciplined, highly effective, highly efficient team that's coachable, that gets along, it's important that you instill discipline and have high expectations, or they will run the team. Not not you. Remember the rules that you put on paper and the rules that you talk about. Those aren't the rules. The rules that you put on paper and the rules you tell the team are the rules are not the rules. This isn't a riddle. This is the truth. What you enforce as a coach, what you enforce as a parent, what you enforce as a boss, as a teacher, so on and so forth. Those are the rules. The rules are what's enforced. And to get our teams to be disciplined, because discipline equals success in a lot of ways. Discipline is not yelling and screaming. Discipline is not necessarily a drill sergeant-like environment. And when I mean not necessarily, it isn't. It can be very structured. It can have definitely some type parameters, but there should be fun. There should be smiling. There should be laughing. There should be some lightheartedness. There should definitely be a lot of praise. And if you've listened to any of the episodes over the last few years on this podcast, you know, praise is at the top of my coaching strategy toolbox and recommendation list. But to be a successful team over the course of a full season and definitely for multiple years and having consistency, you have to have discipline. You have to have rules. I definitely think you should clearly articulate. I think you should have those rules and writing, I think parents and players should sign off on those rules. I think you should definitely verbally articulate and review those rules clearly and concisely and the benefit, the reason you have them, the why behind the rules. You should give that very upfront, very clearly, early in the season, early and often, but at the end of the day, it's what you enforce. Now you're going, what does this all have to do with the motorcycle cop on Bogus Basin Road in Boise and slowing, and me slowing down and hitting the brake a year later? You all know what I'm talking about here I say, when you establish your rules and you enforce those consequences early and consistently, there will be a massive residual effect. The length of that residual effect will vary from rule to rule and team to team, but it will be very surprising to most coaches how long that residual effect will last. In other words, when you enforce a rule, when it's broken or it's not followed as the expectation is laid forth, when you enforce that consequence, there will be a residual effect of that. Now, there's probably a better synonym than residual, but I think it fits well here for the most part. That residual effect, is awesome. You do not. This is good news to wrap this all with a bow here. You do not, and you will not have to. I should say, you will not have to. Enforce every single practice or weekly, or even bi-weekly, your rules, your expectations, the team rules, the team's expectation. You will early get tested. You will early on have to communicate it more often, give the team the expectations and the why. You're going to have to enforce it more upfront if you're doing it right, because that residual effect. will take care of a lot of that remaining season and the remaining practices. If you enforce it early, you will set forth the expectation that this is a rule and thus you will slow down like me on that road. You will slow down the infractions. You may reduce that down to a very finite, very minimal amount of infractions, if any. If you're up front, if you show yourself those police officers, those traffic cops, they showed their presence early and often, at least early for me, having only been up here a couple years. It was pretty early on. They were out there and a year later and probably uh, 250 drives down that road later. I'm still thinking that they are probably going to be there or I better respect that they might be there. The residual effect. You all know what I'm talking about. You all had a spot near your house around where you live or where you used to live with the police. You saw them a few times. You saw them one time. You saw them over the course of a few weeks, but you, you still slow down to this day, even though you probably haven't seen them there in a while. This is what happens with our rules. This is great news. Some rules will get pushed a little more than others. Lack of hustle is a big one that gets pushed rather often. Disrespect towards a coach or another teammate. That typically doesn't happen very often, especially if you pick your team right and condition them right in terms of molding them into the right people and and getting a good, positive culture full of praise. And and you nip that in the bud right away. What I'm sharing here is really good news. And if you haven't experienced this, trust me on this. This is really cool. Don't feel like it's going to be nonstop. Every practice, I got to lay the law down. I got to drop the hammer all the time. No, but you better do it consistently early. You better do it if you have to often early, definitely consistent early. You better bring it. You better be consistent early. And that residual effect will last a long time. It's really neat to know that it's it's not, it's about establishing a culture. It's about establishing a better environment to play and practice in. You establish it. You don't have to sit. It's like a house. It put, You know, when they build a house, it's a 12 month, a 10 month, a 14 month process, for example but they don't keep building and building. They'll come back and maintain. They'll come back and maintain. They'll come back. And sometimes you need a little bit of sidewalk repair. My old man and my mom had some sidewalk repair that they needed. We had a little faulty issue with some plumbing. You get the roof repaired or or fixed out, you know, maybe 30 years down the road. You get it. There's definitely some upkeep, but the bulk of it is up front. Just like building a house, you're going to build that culture of your team. And then you can sit back and enjoy the house a lot more. You can sit on the patio a lot more and just enjoy the view enjoy the sunshine. And that is exactly how it works with coaching. So we really want to share this message. This is so awesome when you trust this, but you have to do the work early and it's not about being liked. It's not about being their friend. If you're coaching and you're trying to make friends, you need to stop coaching. You need to stop. You need to get out of coaching. Your job is not to be their friend. If you get into coaching to make friends or have friends, if you were trying to be friends with the players, get out, just get out. You should be friendly, but you need to keep that separation. You are the person that is the leader. You are the leader. You're the leader. The coach is the leader. At the end of the day, they're the leader. Now, other players will, will work together. They'll be buying. There's going to be encouragement from player to player, peer to peer. But you're the leader. You're not their friend. You're not trying to be their friend. You don't necessarily need to be liked. If you want to be liked more than anything, don't be a coach. Don't be a coach. And probably don't even be a parent, right? You don't want to go in it trying to be liked. What you want is their respect and you want them to become better human beings, better people, better baseball players. And if you want them to like everything you're doing, you are not going to get them and help get them to where they need to be as people and as players. Those cannot coexist. They just can't. It's not inherent. It's not within, it's not human nature, especially kids and teenagers. It's not in, in their nature, on average, overall, to like discipline. They don't enjoy this. They don't really like discipline. They're not begging for discipline. They need it. They know they want it deep down, but they're not going to like it all the time. Thus, they're not going to like you from time to time. And that's Okay, most of the kids aren't gonna hate you, but there are going to be some kids that come across as not liking you. That's okay, they respect you. They probably like you that you're doing it. You will become a fan favorite, a player favorite if you do what I'm talking about. And that residual effect, that tri- that domino effect, that long-term payoff is awesome when it comes to early on establishing and, remember, enforcing the rules. It's not about what you put on paper, although that is cool. That's a good idea. It's not about what you tell them. It's about what you enforce. I'd venture to say about 80% of the rules that coaches tell their players are rules or put on paper at the beginning of the year are not really rules. 80% are a waste of time. Might as well just gotten some better batting practice in or more reps or more bullpen sessions done. Should have just taken those words, saved it, skip forward to the drill or something because talking about the rules, writing the rules, that's 4% of the equation. All right. 96% of it is the enforcement of the rules, the consistent clear enforcement and the benefit, the positive of that is that long-term residual effect of a better culture, a more disciplined culture. And the workload really diminishes later on, even after a couple of weeks, definitely after a month and the effort that it takes from a coach to establish that disciplined culture just really drops off. But you got to show yourself consistent early and often. If not, you're going to get the opposite. You're going to let the inmates run the asylum and you do not want to be there. That is not a good place to be. All right. That wraps up this week's episode. Until next Tuesday, take care of yourself. Take care of your health. Let's take care of our health. Let's take care of our families, our friends when they need our support, our loved ones. Let's take this information. Take it out. Put it into action. Just like your rules, what I'm sharing with you and what I've curated from all the wisdom in the baseball community that I've come across over all these years to share with you. It doesn't do one iota of good. It doesn't do one. Isn't that a cool word? Iota. I think that's a cool one iota of good. It doesn't do any good just to listen and just to think about it. This world is full of ideas, thoughts, and thinking. What we need is action. Take it out there. Trust it. Fit it into your coaching routine. Take the principles. Take the absolutes. Fit it into your style. Take this out there. Guide your players, your team, your kid in the right direction. Be the leader that they need. Have more fun along the way. Enjoy it a lot more. Win more games doing it this way. And until next Tuesday, adios. This has been the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.